You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, but with all of that, let's jump into the Bible and, um, again, find your way to Matthew chapter 15. Let's pray as we do. Uh, Lord, we bring our hearts before you. We thank you, Lord, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are sovereign over all the affairs on earth. And Lord, as we gather together in your name, we thank you so much for bringing us back in here. We thank you for your, your, your protection and your blessing on our life. We thank you that we have this building, that we can come in out of the, the elements to be in a nice, warm building. And Lord, we thank you for the ability to open your word. Your word is amazing. It is powerful. It is life-giving. And Lord, we ask now that as we read it, you would speak to us, speak to our hearts, and give us the ability to understand you. Lord, we want to see you. We want to know you. We want to experience your spirit ministering and speaking to us. And we know that faith comes by your word, hearing your word. So Lord, help us to hear this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. 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 Uh, Well, we are going through the book of Matthew verse by verse. And one of the things that is beautiful about going through the Bible verse by verse is you get the whole diet of God's Word. Uh, A lot of us, if we weren't going through the Bible verse by verse, we would probably have our favorite subjects that we were teaching on, and uh, we want to eat our broccoli, we want to eat our yams, and uh, we would probably only have dessert, right? Uh, But instead, we go through the whole Word of God. And this morning, we're in a chapter that I probably wouldn't just pick if I was a topical teacher, But going through the Bible verse by verse, we have a very interesting chapter ahead of us. And as I read this week and as I studied this week, uh, the Lord really blessed my heart. And I pray that it's a blessing to you as well. The title of the message is titled, Christ-Centered Identity. Christ-Centered Identity. Here's a question to kind of just get our thoughts moving in that direction. How do you see yourself? Where do you get your identity How do you view yourself in this world? And oh, a lot of us get our identity. I'm a surfer. I'm a golfer. I'm a businessman. I'm a good looking girl, guy, whatever. Uh, I'm a comedian. I'm charismatic. Uh, Just, I was at a wedding on uh, Friday. Friday evening, uh, David Trulio, our high school, uh, Trujillo, our uh, junior high and high school youth pastor, got married. Um, little Amelia, oh my gosh, 23 years old, uh, sleeping on the top bunk, never kissed a boy her whole life, uh, dating David and courting, and they never kissed, and they had their first kiss on their wedding day. And uh, uh, they're off on their honeymoon right now. But as I was at the wedding, and you know, you mingle with, and you see all the different people and how they how they handle themselves, and some are funny and some are quiet and different. And we see different identities. Where do you find your identity? Uh, we are meant to find our identity in Jesus, and what an amazing identity it is. But there's a lot of things working against us that cause us to try to get our identity from other places. And so this morning, we're going to look and we're going to see what it means to have a Christ-centered identity. Here's the setting. Here's where we're going. Matthew 15. Uh, if you're there, hold your Bible up. Let me see it. You got it? Bible open, Matthew 15, way to go, way to go. Here's where we're at. We're going to go back just a couple verses into chapter 14 to verse 34. And here's what's happened. Uh, Jesus has been teaching. Multitudes are coming to him. When they come to him, they're like in awe. Oh my gosh, the teaching's amazing. And he's, he's just doing this incredible work. And they, uh, uh, you know, thousands come. And it's the end of the day. And we were there last week. And uh, the disciples go, hey, we're tired, we're done, uh, a lot of chairs to set up, uh, 
Send, send the people home. Send them home. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want you to give them something to eat. And we learned last week, that's Jesus' ways, right? We follow him, and then he uses our life to bless others. And that's what's happening here. Uh, uh, they all, you know, they, they feed 5,000, and then uh, they cross over the Sea of Galilee. And here we'll pick up in uh, chapter 14, verse 34. Are you there? Let's read. Uh, when they, that's the disciples, had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Uh, Gennesaret is right on the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful plain right on the northwest side of Galilee. And I've been there. It's gorgeous. It's a slight sloping hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The grass is about this tall. It's just beautiful. In the spring, it's green. And in the, in the, uh, in the fall, it turns, you know, uh, brown, you know, and it's just, it's just a beautiful place. And that's where they're at. They're here at the, at the uh, shore of uh, Gennesaret, verse 35. And when the men of that place recognized him, that's when they recognized Jesus, they sent out into all that surrounding region and brought to him all who were sick. What a great picture. What a great picture of what a church is. What's that? They heard Jesus was there. They knew Oh, that he heals, oh, that he saves, oh, that he feeds, oh, that he nourishes. And they go around and they get all of the afflicted, all of the blind, all of the lame, all of the messed up, all of the divorced, all of the addicts, all of the drunks, all of the people with problems, and they bring them to Jesus. What a picture of the church. This is not a place for amazing people who learn to be proper and speak very well and drive you nuts. No, 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 no. This is meant to be a place for pound puppies where all of us can come together and be brought to the Savior and be healed and be fed and be nourished. And so that's what they do. All of those who are fighting with their spouse, all of those who have troubled teens, they all come, all of them were sick, verse 36, and they begged him, that they begged Jesus, that, uh, that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Interesting. Interesting. Question for you. Did they need to touch Jesus' garment to be made well? No. No. All they needed to do was just believe. Just call upon his name. Just say in their heart, Jesus, save me. I need you. They didn't need to touch the hem of his garment, but sometimes we need a touch point for our faith. Sometimes we need a touch point to help us grow in our faith. Sometimes we need to come forward and have a pastor pray for us that we might have a touch point for our faith. Sometimes we need to have a brother or a sister come alongside and put their arm on us. Sometimes we need to gather in Jesus' name and be with others and have a physical touch point to help grow our faith. That's what church is all about. Chapter 15. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem, pay attention, from Jerusalem, came to Jesus. These were the big guns. These were the top brass. These were the mighty religious leaders from Jerusalem, the Mecca of all ministry, the big guys, the headquarters. This was Billy Graham. This was Chuck Smith. This was John Piper or whoever your hero of the faith is. And all the top brass comes to Jesus from Jerusalem. Uh, these guys are going to look bad in a moment, by the way. And I'm not saying Chuck Smith or any of these guys are bad. No, 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 no. Uh, but the big guns come out, right? And they see Jesus doing this mighty work. 
They see thousands being fed, being nourished. They see the blind receive their sight. They see the hear, the, the deaf hearing for the first time. They see the lame actually walking. They see the addicts being freed. They see lives being transformed, marriages healed. I love being a pastor. I get to watch all this. And they see all of this and they go, what do they go? Verse 2, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread what that's what you saw in all of this that's what you got out of this are you kidding me you missed out on all the glorious things god is doing and that's what you saw I'm always amazed, by the way, I'll give a sermon, I'll pour my heart into it, I put hours of study in, I give it, and someone will send me an email, uh, not from this church, of course, but maybe a listener online, <laughs> and they'll say, you missed to pronounce a word, and blah, 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 it's not pronounced this way, it's pronounced this way, I'm like, that's what you got out of that? Right? Was there, an, that's what you... And hey, I appreciate the constructive criticism. I need it. I need it. I'm a flawed man. I don't mind at all. But there's so much more to see. And here they come to Jesus and they see him doing all this work and they say, you didn't wash your hands properly. This is not hygiene. It's not like he had, you know, manure on his hands when they were eating. That's not what we're talking about. It's ceremonial washing. You see, there was a book. It was called the Mishnah. It's not the Bible. It's all kinds of commentary on the Bible, full of traditions. And in the Mishnah, there would be volumes of chapters written about ceremonial cleansing. There would be volumes of chapters written about keeping the Sabbath or whatever rule the Bible has. Volumes written on it. And they, they were accusing Jesus of breaking the tradition of properly ceremonially, ceremonially cleansing as described in the Mishnah. And that's what they see out of this, right? Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat their bread. They do not ceremonially cleanse. And look what Jesus says. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Did you notice that? What, what did they accuse Jesus of breaking? The commandment of God? No, 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 the traditions of men. And Jesus says, Why do you break the commandment of God? Hey, traditions are great. I love traditions, but traditions must always take a, bat, a back seat to the Word of God. And it is very common, it happens that somehow traditions take the front seat and the Word of God takes the back seat. And that's what's happening here in the religious leaders' lives. And Jesus brings it clarity to the whole subject. He says, hey, listen, uh, you're accusing me of breaking the traditions, but why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your traditions? And then he gives an example. Let me give you an example of what you do, Jesus says. For God commanded, saying, honor your father and mother. Where did that command come from? The Ten Commandments. For you, any gold stars here in the room? What commandment was that? Not four. Good guess, you're close. <laughs> Number four is uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Number five, the first four are about God, our relationship with God. The fifth commandment and the, re the remaining uh, six commandments are about man-to-man -man relationship. First four commandments about God. Next six commandments about man-to-man. -man. Here's the fifth commandment, the first commandment about man-to-man. -man. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother, Exodus 20, Ten Commandments. Jesus quotes it. He says, why? Uh, God commanded saying, honor your father and mother, and he who curses his father or mother, let him be put to death. Serious commandment, right? Verse 5, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is now a gift to God. 
Then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your what? Tradition. What's that? Yeah, here's what they would say. They would say, hey, listen, I'm a pastor. And I know I'm supposed to honor my father and mother, but I've got to prepare a sermon. So what my time I would normally spend honoring my mother and father today, they need help in the garden or they need get a trip to the doctor or whatever. I'm instead going to give it service to God. and It's a gift to God. And therefore, they called it Corbin. Corbin was from a Hebrew word that meant a gift dedicated to God. Corbin, sorry mom and dad, Corbin, this is going to God. And Jesus says, in doing so, you've made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. By your tradition. Hey, know this. It is very important to God that we honor our mother and father. Who was that written to? Was that written to young children? Well, yes. Teach them to honor you. By the way, moms, parenting in Pinterest class, boundaries and self-control so that they might honor their mother and father, super important. Yeah, that's your job to be a good parent, to teach the kids that. And by the way, one of the best things we can do is teach our kids to honor authority. Uh, the reason, uh, one of the reasons, or not the reason, one of the reasons our world is a mess is because no one honors authority. Uh, we all think we are the authority. We're not. Um, but before I digress, uh, <laughs> this was written to adults. It is God's will that we would take care of our parents. Not that we would send them away in some forgotten home and maybe send them a Christmas present once a year, but no, 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 that we'd be actively involved in caring and loving and honoring our parents. They changed your diaper, now change theirs, God says, right? Uh, Let's take care of our parents. And he says, why do you make the commandment of God of no effect? And uh, my pages have been turning while I'm walking around. Verse 6 again, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition, you hypocrites. And well did Isaiah prophesy about you. Interesting. Isaiah, he's going to quote here from Isaiah 29, verse 13. Isaiah written 700 years before Jesus was walking on the earth. And he says, Isaiah was talking about you when when he wrote this. These people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me. And he gets to the root of the problem. This is a heart issue. Your heart is far from me. And in vain, they worship me. They don't think so. They think they did a fantastic job at synagogue today. And Jesus says, no, 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 it was all in vain. It was all in vain. It's vain because their hearts are far from God. Anytime we do anything, if we're not here today, if we're singing the songs, but we're not actually have our heart on God, our worship was in vain. If you're opening your Bible and uh, you're just kind of like thinking really about something else right now, your heart's not set on God, your worship is in vain. Jesus wants our heart, not our lip service, he tells them. Verse 10, And when he called the multitude to himself... He said to them, very interesting by the way, he quits talking to the religious leaders and now he talks to the whole multitude. Why did he quit talking to them? Because their heart was far from him. If you want Jesus to speak to you, just give him your heart honestly and sincerely and he'll speak to you. But if you give him your lip service, you will not hear a word. This is who he is. This is how he works. He speaks to the multitude and he calls them to himself and he says to them, hear and understand. Uh, The word there, by the way, keep on hearing and keep understanding. Uh, It's in the present active tense. Keep on hearing and keep on understanding. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, 
Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you say these things? Hey, do you know that these religious top brass, I mean, the big guys, the big guns, the, you know, the, the head honchos from Jerusalem, do you know that you really offended them? Are you even in tune, Jesus, with what? And Jesus says, yeah, I know, I know. Look what he says. He answered and said, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Oh, this reminds us, if you've been with us, this reminds us of the parable of what? The wheat and the tares. Every plant that my heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. They're just tares. And what would happen to the tares, Jesus taught us in the Bible? They'd be allowed to grow until the harvest, and then they'd be pulled up, put in a bundle, and burned, right? Uh, here Jesus comes back to that parable. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Look at this. Let them alone. Leave them alone. Don't go after them. They are blind leaders. Blind leaders. What a picture. Jesus was so good with words. What a picture. A blind leader. Yeah, here, follow me. Oh, Blind leaders, right? And they're blind leaders of who? They're blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, then both will fall into a ditch. Wow. I want you to know I take that verse very much to heart. I stand before you, before the Lord, with great fear and trepidation, making sure that I accurately teach the Word of God so that I'm not a blind leader. In my own life, I make sure I'm not just preaching the Word, but actually following and obeying the Word, lest when I, lest when I preach to others, I would disqualify myself. I don't want to be a blind leader, lead, uh, causing other people to fall into a ditch. There are a lot of blind leaders out there. Uh, uh, a lot of uh, world philosophies, a lot of uh, world ideas, a lot of world views that will sound great, but they will lead you into a ditch. And uh, Jesus warns of that very clearly. But let's take a look at what's really going on here and some of the things that Jesus just taught us. These religious leaders, instead of seeing all the good things Jesus were doing, instead they're offended by him and they're bringing accusations against them. And their accusation is that they didn't uh, properly ceremonially cleanse. But I want you to know something. This is not about hygiene. And this is not about health. This is not about the well-being of the people. They're not like so caring about the people. This is not even about religious law. Do you know what it's about? It's about their identity being threatened. Their identity is being threatened. The religious leaders love to be known as the religious gurus. They love their image. They love being a public figure. They love being in power and control. And it is these things that they are finding their identity in. And therefore, they're offended by Jesus because their identity is in trouble. You see, Jesus has come and he has shaken things up in our story. The whole world is talking about Jesus. Last week we saw it was Herod who was troubled in talking about Jesus. From kings to paupers and everyone in between, the whole world has been shaken up by Jesus. Everyone is talking about him, even the religious leaders. Jesus has shaken things up with his profound teaching, with his humility. Wow, he'll just associate with the, the lowliest of people. He's shaken things up by his ability to heal people and make them whole. And even those with the most demonic of problems become healed and well and healthy and transformed. His grace and mercy flows freely and His love towards people is just clearly evident. And standing next to Jesus, the religious leaders look incompetent. They look juvenile. They look impotent as all of us would. 
But instead of recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, they instead are threatened because of their identity and they panic. And instead of seeing Jesus as Lord, they claw to hold on to their power and to their position because their identity is being threatened. And to protect their identity, they try to find fault in Jesus. Jesus, you're not doing it right. Forget the fact that you've done all these other things amazing. You haven't done this right. Forget the fact that you've healed, I mean, just fed 5,000. Oh, oh, just forget that. You didn't wash your hands properly. This is not about washing. This is about their identity being threatened. By the way, just as a sidebar, a little short application here. When facing a conflict in life, with another person, when facing a conflict, it is wise to consider what the real subject is actually about. Because most often, it's not about the conflict you're actually facing. It's generally about something else. And if you're married, you know this. How many of you got in a fight and you actually forgot about what you're fighting about? You know why? Because that was never the issue in the first place. It really wasn't about the crumbs in the toaster, at the, you know, that wasn't it. It wasn't about the lid being off the, the toothpaste. It was about someone's identity being threatened, and it's bothering me. It's wise to know what we're actually fighting about. And here, these religious leaders, they're in the presence of Jesus, but they're more interested in protecting their identity as religious leaders. What a shame. What a shame. Missing out on the Messiah. Missing out on all the good work the Lord is doing. And instead, trying to protect themselves. Trying to prove how amazing they are. Wouldn't it be just ridiculous to come to church and be trying to impress people? Not that that ever happens. And miss out on all that the Messiah is doing. And yet that's exactly what's happening here. And here's one of the first points I want to bring to you. If our identity can be lost, we've got the wrong identity. If our identity can be lost, we've got the wrong identity. We've made a serious mistake in where we're finding our identity. Hey, today many people are stressed out at the results of the election. Why? Because their identity is in what? politics in the religious party what a mistake and if you find yourself overly stressed hey relax relax man don't get your identity from the wrong things you are not a donkey you are not an elephant you're a son a daughter of jesus christ that's way better than donkeys and elephants I woke up this morning early, you know, driving to a church during sunrise, and there the sun is rising, the sprinkles are falling, and there is this glorious, brightest rainbow that I've seen in a long time. I see a lot of you shaking your heads. You saw it. It was glorious. I mean, I saw the full entire 360. It went from Encinitas all the way to Cardiff, and I just thought, Lord, you're amazing. The colors were so brilliant, I'm just like, wow, and I'm like what election you are the king of kings you are the lord of lords your mercy covers all the earth oh lord you're just incredible how futile to get our identity from a political party or young woman how futile to get your identity from a relationship status Oh, well, I'm single, I'm getting older, I'm really nervous. Hey, where are you getting your identity? How foolish to get our identity from our appearance. How foolish to get our identity from our wealth. How foolish to get our identity from our zip code. How foolish to get our identity from the college we went to 30 years ago. And you still have a... Harvard sticker on your car and on your shirt and on everything you touch. And even your love for that football team really isn't about football. It's about your identity and holding it up. 
How foolish to get your identity from your kids and pressing everybody with what an amazing parent you are. Look how perfect my house is. Look how perfect my children are. Careful. Why? Because if our identity can be lost, and it can, it's called teenage years, we have the wrong identity. And it's interesting that what Jesus uses to shake things up for the religious leaders, what did he use to shake up their identity? The coming of the Messiah? Wow. For a beautiful woman, what will he use to shake up their identity? Their beauty? For those holding their identity in a political position, an election? The book of Hebrews says that God will shake everything that can be shaken so that only what cannot be shaken will remain. Jesus is shaking this religi- these re- religious leaders because their identity is in the wrong thing. And if your identity can be lost and the religious leader's identity is being lost by yeah, the amazingness of Jesus and the folly of their religious position, uh, you might have your identity in the wrong place. The second thing we learn from this is if our identity is in anything other than Jesus Christ, it will fail us. It will fail us. Hey, can I just tell you some realities of life? Beauty fades. Wealth gets eaten up. Currencies get devalued. I have some good friends who are really wealthy in South Africa, uh, you know, uh, centuries, no, not that long, decades ago. Uh, And uh, the South Africa's economy collapsed. And guess what happened to their wealth? It collapsed with it. Yeah, beauty fades, currencies collapse, it just happens, it's how it works. And may I even say this, governments may get overthrown, nations may crumble, but he who abides in Jesus Christ will remain forever forever if our identity is in anything other than jesus it will fail us the prophet isaiah was a godly man but young isaiah in his young age may have had too much of his identity being found in his national status because god did something very interesting there was a godly king named king uzziah Oh, he was an amazing king. The nation Israel had been divided into two sections due to a civil war. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, they had 10 of the 12 tribes. In the southern kingdom, they had two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And uh, Uzziah was the king of the southern kingdom. And he reigned for 51 years from... uh, Seven ninety one to seven forty, uh, and in seven forty, uh, Uzziah died. And uh, Uzziah was a good king when he took over the kingdom of the southern kingdom. Uh, it was broken down. It was in a weakened condition. But he rebuilt the nation's economy, and he rebuilt their military, and he invested heavily in developing the nation's agriculture and their, their husbandry of animals and their exporting of goods. And he expanded the southern kingdom's boundaries quite a bit. Uh, the nation grew under his leadership. He was a very good king. On top of all that, he put God first. He was a godly man. He really served the Lord. He went to the temple frequently, and he was a worshiper of the true and living God. And when Uzziah died, young Isaiah panicked, got concerned. 
Maybe too much of his identity was in the king's stellar leadership. And God reminds Isaiah uh, that, hey, uh, I'm in control. If you will, flip over to Isaiah. Uh, I want to skim through this real fast if we can. I think it'll be worth our time. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And when you're there, hold your Bible up and keep holding it up so I can tell when everybody's finally there. I don't want to read without you. Isaiah 6, hold your Bible up when you're there. Still a lot of pages turning. For everybody else, hurry up because your neighbor's arm is going to get tired holding up the Bible. <laughs> Isaiah 6. Look at this. In the year that King Uzziah died, look what Isaiah says. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. I saw who? The Lord. More specifically, John 12, verse 41, tells us that when Isaiah saw this, guess who he saw? Jesus. On the year that King Uzziah died, John 12, 41 tells us, Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne, high and lifted up in all of his glory. He saw Jesus. Amazing. And look at this. He's sitting on the throne, lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with his glory. In other words, his sovereign authority, the glory of who, who he is, just filled the entire place. You could feel it everywhere. Amazing. Amazing. Verse 2. And above it stood seraphim. Seraphim are highly uh, uh, favored created beings, high-ranking created beings. I'll use the word uh, angelic beings, but they're not angels. They're seraphim, and they're there, and they're in the presence of God. They're in the throne room of God. You'll remember uh, the Ark of the Covenant had these angelic beings, these cherubim, on the top of the mercy seat, and God said that was made according to pattern, according to a pattern that was in heaven. There's these creatures we're going to get a description of them in heaven that are at the throne of god and here's what they look like they're seraphim each one had six wings so in other words there's a bunch of seraphim and each of them have six wings and with two he covered his face and with two he covers his feet and with two he flew very awesome picture here by the way with two they cover their face in absolute reverence and awe of who God is. With two, they cover their feet. Oh, I am not worthy to be in your presence. They cover their feet in humility. Oh, Lord, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. And with two, they fly around very active, doing and completing and fulfilling the, the will of God in their lives. A great picture for us. May we come before the throne with the head bowed in awe and reverence of God. May we come before the throne with our feet humbled. We know we're sinners standing before a holy God. May we come before the throne active and busy doing the Father's will. Great picture, right? Uh, verse 3. And one cried to another. Who's the one? One cried. What, what, what's the one? Who is it? Nobody's answering. Who is it? It's the seraphim. One of the many seraphim cried to another seraphim, and here's what they cry out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Lord, You're so holy. Maybe worshiping the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Holy, 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 I don't know. But they say the whole earth is full of your glory. Not just the temple in heaven, but the whole earth is full of your glory. I woke up this morning and I go, oh Lord, your glory covers all the earth. You're so amazing, Lord. You're so amazing. And look at this. And the post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. The voice of a seraphim shakes heaven. Imagine what the voice of God does. 
And the whole house was filled with smoke and manifestation, a physical presence of the glory of God. Verse 5, so I said, woe is me, Isaiah says, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. What is Isaiah saying? I'm a what? Sinner. You might feel pretty righteous. You might feel like you're a pretty good person sitting next to the person you're sitting next to. Man, I'm a lot better than them. But the moment that you stand in the presence of God, you know what you're going to say? Oh my goodness. You are so holy and I am so sinful. Oh, I'm in trouble. That's what he says. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Boy, don't we? I'm amazed how I hear people talking in the malls, in the restaurants, in the places of commerce. I'm amazed. The F-bomb has become just a regular, frequently used favorite word in people's vocabulary. What a shame. What a shame. Uh, I'm amazed how how the increase of that word in the last five years. It just baffles my mind. And on TV and, and... it's like crazy, right? Um, where am I? What verse am I in? Uh, verse 5. Uh, I dwell, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And now my eyes have seen the King, King Jesus, uh, John 12 tells us, the Lord, the Lord of the hosts, the Lord of all the people. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having a in his hand a live coal, that he had taken from the tongs from the altar of Jesus Christ and he touched my mouth with it and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. You know what? This is what Jesus does. This is who Jesus is. We come before him and if we're just honest about our sin, if we just confess our sin, he says, it's no problem for me whatsoever. I died on a cross to pay for that sin and I'll cleanse it right now. Wow. How good is our God? Lord, I'm such a mess. I know you are. No problem. Take my hand and walk. I'll clean you up. My righteousness imparted to you freely. And then look what happens. I love this. And uh, also I heard a voice saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Uh, This voice is the Lord. Look at this, verse 8. Also I heard the voice of who? The Lord, Jesus. And what's he saying? What's he asking? Who shall I send and who will go for us? Us? Who's us? The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all working together to do these things to bring us to repentance that our sin might be cleansed and to send us out as workers in his kingdom. Wow. Same thing that we looked at last week. Same God. Jesus last week we looked at. We find our purpose in life because he heals all the people and then he says, now you give them something to eat. I've saved you, now go out into the world and tell others about me and bring the other messed up people that were messed up just like you and bring them to me and I will heal them. Uh, Isaiah does the same thing here. I just love it. God does the same thing for uh, Isaiah here. Uh, And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And I just love this. Sinners turned into messengers like that. We are the mission church. Do you know why? For this reason, that name, for this reason and this reason only, that you would remember that you are on a mission for Jesus Christ. He wants to send you out into all the world. It's called the Great Commission. Now that I've saved you, now that I've cleansed you of your sin, go out into all the world, teaching them to obey all the things I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. In other words, yeah, you were a drunk, you were an alcoholic, you were an addict, you were in pornography, you were in uh, uh, Harvard, you were in whatever. Uh, I've cleansed you, I've forgiven you, now go out into the world and bring them to me and let me cleanse them and heal them and feed them and nourish them just like I did for you. This is who he is, this is what he does, this is who we are in his name. This is our identity. We have purpose, right? 
I, I just incredible. I need to move on or we're never going to get through the sermon. Um, and look what he says. Now, go and tell this people of God's gracious, forgiving love. Go and tell them that you saw me. You stood before my throne. You were so aware of your sin. And I cleansed you like that. Go and bring them to me. And look what he says. Uh, here's what's going to happen. They'll keep on hearing, but they won't understand. They'll keep on seeing, but they won't perceive. Uh, their heart is dull. Their ears are heavy. Their eyes are shut. Lest they should see with their ears and hear with, excuse me, see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. What a picture of man. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit sending out messengers into the world to bring you to Jesus. But I've got Facebook, I've got Instagram, I've got uh, TikTok, I've got my job, I've got The Bachelor, I've got these different things that I'm so busy in and we keep on hearing, but we won't hear. We keep on seeing, but we won't see. But oh, if we would, how he would turn and heal us. What an amazing God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is him. This is who he is. And there is none like him. Jesus is unshakable. And Isaiah sees Jesus in all his glory. And Isaiah's heart that was so troubled. Because, oh no, what's going to happen to the nation now? Now Isaiah's heart is set at perfect peace. Because his eyes are on the Lord. And he recognizes his identity is not in King Uzziah. It's in King Jesus. And his identity is restored to its rightful place. If our identity is in anything other than Jesus, it will get shaken. And when it gets shaken, we will get shaken. That's what's happening to the religious leaders in our story. Let's go back to Matthew 15. Uh, let's look at it. Let's see what's happening here. Their world is getting rocked and it's getting rocked by Jesus. He's intentional to rock the world. Why? Because the religious leaders are self-righteous. They think they're better than everyone else. They even think they're better than who? Jesus. Jesus, why are you doing this wrong? I'm more righteous than you. You got a problem when you think you're more righteous than Jesus. That's the danger of self-righteousness. Their identity is not in the greatness of God's love for them. It's in their own self-righteousness. And they're cons con constantly working to be amazing. Can I ask you something? Isn't it tiring trying to be amazing on your own? <laughs> Isn't it tiring trying to make sure your Harvard sticker is staying straight on the back of your car? Isn't it amazing to make sure your kids are, be, are making sure that you look perfect all the time and that your daughter has to be the most popular one and your son has to be the quarterback of the football team? Isn't it amazing striving for all that? Isn't it amazing having to come to church and being proper? Yes, proper. Isn't it tiring? And the religious leaders are, are wearing themselves out. And God hates self-righteousness. He hates it. I want to ask you to write this down. God hates self-righteousness. Why should I write that down? I know that. Here's why. Because there's something happens when you put it in writing. It just gets etched in your heart. Write it down. God hates self-righteousness. And guess what we're prone to? Self-righteousness. I want you to know the way to God is not found by climbing up the ladder of self-improvement. The way to God is found by bowing down at the cross of Jesus. Not by climbing up the ladder of self-improvement, but by bowing down at the cross of Jesus. You say, what do you mean bowing down at the cross of Jesus? Should I bow before a cross? No, 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 no. You should bow before this truth that God so loved you that he would give his life, he'd leave heaven, become a man, take the punishment of your sin upon his back and be crucified on your behalf so that your sin might be forgiven. And righteousness might be yours. That's how we find our way to God. God hates self-righteousness because it cannot save us from hell. God hates self-righteousness because it cannot bring us to God. God hates self-righteousness because it produces arrogant, rancid fruit in our lives. Like the fruit that we see in the Pharisees' lives right now. 
And Jesus here reveals four rancid fruits that self-righteousness produces in our lives. The first one is that self-righteousness creates a critical spirit. Look back again at verse 2. The self-righteous religious leaders are coming to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders because they don't wash their hands properly? They're judging Jesus and they're judging the disciples. Isn't that crazy? Jesus, you and your disciples, you're not as good as we are. You don't do it right. Forget the fact that you just fed 5,000 people and healed the blind and the lame are walking. Forget all that. You didn't wash your hands properly. Crazy. And you know what I know? I've seen it in myself and I've seen it in others. Self-righteous people are overly critical of others. Here they are, they're judging Jesus and they're judging the disciples and the same thing happens today. The same thing happens today. Oh, the music's too loud. Oh, the Sunday school teacher. It said hi to that girl, but didn't say hi to my kid when I came in. Oh, that Sunday. I think that Sunday school teacher has it out for my kid. Oh, and the coffee, man. It was too cold. It was too hot. It was too strong. It was too weak. And the donuts, man. Uh, they don't even have my favorite donut. They don't even have my favorite bagel. They're just, and, and that greeter, that usher, he didn't even say hi to me when I came in. And all oh, that person with the big head, they always sit right in front of me. He did it last week. I think he looks to see where I'm sitting and he comes and says, I had my lawn chair last week right there and then he came and put it right in front of me and here he is again this week. Oh, that guy. Self-righteous people are overly critical of others. Self-righteous people are bothered by the faults of others. Hey, relax, little self-righteous critic. You didn't get charged for the donut or the worship, so just relax. <laughs> relax. Self-righteous people are fault finders. What do they care if the disciples wash their hands properly or not? What do they care? Oh, they only care because it's threatening their identity. Self-righteous people are critical, but you know what? Real Christians are not bothered by other people's blunders. You step and you trip up and you make a mess on the floor and you're like, hey, no big deal. I do it all the time. I get it, man. I'm saved by grace just like you. No big deal. Don't even give it a second thought. That's why I love being around godly people. They're just great to be around. It's tiring, man, being a self-righteous person. And that's why they have a critical spirit. They're miserable and they want everybody else miserable too. I do this and I do, you don't, you don't do nothing. Yeah, that's because you're, you're miserable. Number two, self-righteousness causes us to misuse and abuse God's word. You're going to see each one of these gets more and more serious. They misuse and abuse God's word. How so? Well, look what they're saying. They're saying, uh, hey, you're not washing your hands right. And look what Jesus says. He says, listen, you're transgressing the commandment of God. You're misusing and abusing the commandment of God. God commanded you, honor your father and mother. And you're not. You're misusing and abusing the commandment of God. Here's an interesting question. Uh, this, as we said, this is the fifth commandment. It's from Exodus 20, and it's honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged. You might have a long life, right? That's the commandment. Notice what Jesus does here. He adds to the commandment a, a passage from Exodus 21, not related to the Ten Commandments, not in the Ten Commandments. He quotes from uh, Exodus 21. He says, he who curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. Why does Jesus add that on to the commandment right here? Here's why. Because the religious leaders aren't taking God's commandments seriously. They're misusing them and they're abusing them. And Jesus is reminding them of the severe consequences of that. And instead of honoring their father and mother, they're saying, oh, I'm a religious service, I'm doing this. And he says, hey, you're making the commandment of God of no effect. Know this, this is scary, know this. A self-righteous Christian does not eliminate God's word, he twists and misinterprets God's word to suit his own desires. That's what they're doing. 
I don't have to go to church. I can worship God at the beach. I'm a believer. I can worship God at the beach. Hey, that's true. But you won't. You'll look at the girls walking by and you won't be worshiping God. You'll be caught up in surfing or eating or reading your magazine or whatever it is you do, but you won't be worshiping God. Furthermore, the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Do it on the first day of the week and all the more as you see the day of the Lord coming close, right? We need this fellowship. And we can't twist God's word to be what we want it to be, to suit our own desires. Hey, here's another way we do it. Hey, we're married in God's eyes. No, you're not. You're just twisting God's word so you can have sex. Don't fool yourself. This really isn't stealing. They didn't pay me for the overtime, so I took the laptop from work. But it's not really stealing. They owe it to me. Au contraire. So many people abusing unemployment and government aid right now. Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord. Don't do it. I know you can. I even know there's people who have jobs that are getting unemployment because you can get away with it. Doesn't mean it's okay. Don't twist God's word to suit your own desires. That's what self-righteous people do. Right? I want you to know this. It's not good to disobey God's word. You know that. But it's downright demonic to twist God's word to fit our own desires. That's far worse. That's far worse. And that's exactly what self-righteous people do. It's what the religious leaders are doing. And Jesus says this, you make the commandment of God of no effect by your interpretation of it. You see, I wanted you to honor your father and mother. Because I wanted to change you in the process. I wanted to make you selfless in the process. I wanted to teach you how to, how to honor and respect authority. I wanted to build your life in the process. And I also care about your mom and dad. And now two things are happening. God's will is not being done. And my life is not being transformed. Because I'm twisting God's word. Dangerous to do. Number three... Self-righteousness takes my heart far away from the real Jesus. Look at verse 8. Look what he says. These people draw near to me with their mouth. Yeah, they have, uh, they, you know, they're reading out of the Bible. They're singing the songs. They honor me with their lips. But here's the problem. Their heart is far from me. That's the real problem. And in vain they worship me. Self-righteousness takes my heart far away from the real Jesus. You'll make Jesus into something else when we're self-righteous. It's vain religion. It doesn't bring me to Jesus. It doesn't help me know Him. It's religion that never transforms my heart and never transforms my life. And I told you, each one of these gets worse. The last one, the fourth one He gives us is this. Self-righteousness causes me to become a false teacher. Ouch. Ouch. Jesus said they replace the commandments of God with man's rules and teach man's philosophies and man's views as God's doctrine. And that is a messed up thing. When this happens, we actually end up harming the people we're trying to help. Jesus calls us when we do this, blind guides. And so we're telling people about Jesus, but we're actually repulsing them or turning them away from the real Jesus. Jesus would say elsewhere to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he says, you blind guides, you, you travel land and sea to win a single proselyte. And once you convert them, you make them twice a son of hell as you. Jesus' words, not mine. In other words, you don't know me and you tie them into your vain religion and now they're worse off than they were before you ever got to them. And that's what he says here in verse 14. He says, hey, listen, you're a blind guide and if the blind lead the blind, everybody falls into the ditch. And here's what Jesus said about that elsewhere. He says, woe to those who cause one of my little ones to stumble and sin. It'd be better for you if you were never born. It'd be better for you if a millstone was wrapped around your neck and you were thrown into the ocean than you start taking my kids away from me. Wow. 
And so Jesus gave us four serious warnings, all of them stemming from self-righteousness, starts with a critical spirit, moves to the twisting of God's word, then our heart is far from God, and lastly, we're a false teacher that's harming others. And a dangerous place to be. We'll wrap up with these verses. Verse 15, Peter asked Jesus, Jesus, explain this to me more. I mean, I need help. That's verse 15. Verse 16, so Jesus said, are you still without understanding, Peter? You know what that is? Peter, are you still without understanding? You know what that is? That's a general rebuke. That's a general rebuke. Jesus saying, Peter, pay attention. We've covered this before. You should know this by now. It's a dangerous thing to come into the house of the Lord and not to learn. It's a dangerous thing to sit at the feet of Jesus and not to learn. And Jesus says, Peter, general rebuke. Are you still not understanding these things? We've covered this. You should know this. Look what he says. Verse 17, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? I don't need to be graphic. You know what that means. Why is it we work so hard at making sure we've got organic food and no gluten and none of this and none of this and all this and the right and the right and the right. And we're not even worried about what really defiles a man. We're so worried about what we're eating. He says, don't you know what you eat? It's not that big a deal. It just goes in and it goes out. Verse 18, look at this. This is so important. I'm going to ask Kyle and the team to come up as well. Uh, But these things which proceed out of the mouth, come from the heart, and they defile a man. Wow. It's not what goes in, it's what comes out. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. It's not unkosher food that defiles a man. It's an unkosher heart that defiles a man. Wow. Here's the problem. It's a hard issue. And look at verse 19. For out of the heart proceeds, say these with me if you will, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. Whose heart is that? That's our heart. That's our heart. That's who we are. And the reason that we're looking for identity in our Harvard sticker is because deep inside we know this is who I really am and I want to be associated with something better than myself. And so we buy logos on our shirt to be associated with something better than ourselves, something of quality. We put logos on our car to get associated with something else, something of quality. And Jesus is saying this, that's the wrong place to get your identity. You're right, your heart is a mess. That's the whole problem. Now bring it to me and let me give you a new one. Let me give you a new one. Verse 20, these are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile a man. Jesus explains the seriousness of our problem. Our problem is that our heart is entirely corrupt and the heart is the center of our being. That's a big problem. And it's because of that that Jesus would teach us over and over that we need to be born again. We need a new heart. One that finds its identity in Jesus. That's what we need. And the only way that comes is by Jesus giving it to us. How many of you can create a new heart inside you? Yeah, I did not think so. Religion cannot fix our heart. Trying harder cannot fix our heart. We must be born again. I hate to tell us this. It's a, it's a tough note to swallow. Reform is not possible. Have you discovered that? We don't really believe this. We think we can clean ourselves up, so we try harder and harder and harder, and it's an endless pursuit of self-help, and all it will do is make us prideful or bitter, one of the two. It's like putting new tires and new brakes and a new paint job on a car that has a blown engine. It's just a waste of effort. We need a new heart. How do you get a new heart? Well, it's really simple. 
It's really simple. You quit trying to establish your own righteousness. And you do what Isaiah did. You just say, Lord, help me. I'm undone. I'm in trouble. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live in a world that is filthy. And I, I, I wallow in the mud. Jesus saved me. And Jesus comes with a gift from the altar. And he touches us and we're cleansed. We find our identity in Jesus Christ. His ongoing working in our life. It's not something that we did one time. It's something that we do every moment. I want to leave you with one verse. One verse from the King James Version. The 1611 King James Version. I went to that version on purpose. It's Matthew 13, 23. It'll be on your screens. And I want you to read this verse uh, for this reason. I want you to understand the verb tense that is there in these verses. You see, we give our life to Jesus Christ once, but then we give it to Him again when? Every moment. And our identity is not in ourselves. Our identity is in Him. It's His righteousness. I'm no longer trying to impress people. It's His goodness. I'm no longer trying to show everybody how good I am. It's His glory. I'm not trying to get glory for myself. It's my identity is in Him. I'm a child of His. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to notice the the verb tense in this. He that receives seed into the good ground is him that heareth the word and understandeth it which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. Uh, I know we don't like reading that ancient, uh, but here I chose it for a real reason. I want you to notice the verb tense, will you? Uh, the word, the verbs, look at them. He that received, uh, that's past tense. That's it already happened. That's the seed that fell on the good soil. You knew that you needed Jesus as your savior. You made a decision to make him your Lord. If you haven't done that, I want you to do that today. Now is the time. But if you've done it, I want you to remember back to that day. That's the day you gave your life to him. That's past tense. In the Greek, uh, the, the verb is in the, uh, uh, aorist tense. Uh, and now look at the rest of it. He that received, past tense, seed into the good ground is he that hears God's word, understandeth it. Look at that. Heareth the word and understandeth. I use the old King James to show us that that's in the present tense. In the Greek, it's in the present active tense, which means it's an ongoing, continual process that never stops. He that received, past tense, is he that heareth right now. I'm hearing it right now. And understandeth right now. I'm understanding it right now. And bearing fruit right now. Present right now. And bringeth forth right now. Bringing forth hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. In other words, it's an ongoing abiding relationship. Our identity is in him moment by moment. Day by day. Week by week month by month, year by year, until we stand before him in his presence on that glorious day. This is our identity. It's a Christ-centered identity, and we are totally secure in it. And though the world may fall apart, it makes no difference. He's got us in the palm of his hands, and we are his. Shall we stand? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.